you haven't already turned there, please turn in your Bibles or in your bulletins to Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21, which Karen just read for us. Now, last week, we saw how Christ's death on the cross creates a joyful, comforted, and boastful people. How did you do last week in those areas? Were you joyful? Not because your circumstances were great, but because our God is great. Because if we tie our joy to our ever-changing circumstances, we're going to be like a roller coaster, which goes up and down, up and down, constantly changing. But if we tie our joy to what Jesus has done, what Jesus is doing, and what Jesus will do, that joy can overwhelm any sorrow. Were you comforted? How did you handle the anxious moments of the week? When you face doubt, maybe even uncertainty in your faith or in what God is doing, did you look to the cross? Did you remember those words, those words we even sang just this morning, it is finished? Were you boastful, not boasting in yourself or in your own accolades or accomplishments, but boasting in Christ and the cross? It's easy to boast in ourselves, isn't it? It's easy to marvel in our own works, to be inward, not outward focused, to look at our momentary problems instead of others' eternal problems. How did we do? Did we tell anyone about Jesus this past week? Did we have that hard conversation with the Christian friend who needed to hear those words? Did our do our coworkers and classmates even know that we're followers of Christ? Do we give glory to God when things go well? Or do we try to claim the glory for ourselves? How did we do this week? Were we a joyful, comforted, and boastful people? Well, today we're going to look at the tale of two men, and we'll see one who failed to boast in God, one who perfectly boasted in God. We're like that first man. Both in our actions, but also our need for that second one to save us. I could have titled the sermon, The First and Last Adam, The First and Second Adam, or The Tale of Two Kings. In a real sense, both were kings, I've titled it The Tale of Two Men, but all those titles fit. Of course, I'm talking about Adam and Jesus. Adam created in the garden to be a king, to rule over that garden. Jesus, not created, divine from eternity past, high king of heaven, fully God, also became fully man, came to earth to do what Adam failed to do what Adam should have done, and he gave his life on the cross to atone for what Adam failed to do. As we'll see, Adam failed as king, but Jesus prevailed as king. What Adam failed to do, Jesus did. Well, here's our brief outline today. It's just two points, easy to remember, easy to write down. Number one, the first Adam. Number two, the second Adam. 
That's our outline. That's our structure this morning. The first Adam and the second Adam. And if you have your Bible, we'll see the first Adam in verses 12 through 14 of chapter 5. We're going to finish off this chapter today. The first Adam, 12 through 14. And then we'll look at the second Adam from 15 on all the way to the end of the chapter. Let me read verses 12 through 14. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Well, in verse 12 there, just in the beginning of our passage, we actually see several things. We see that sin came into the world through one man. This is a theological concept called original sin. It means, yes, Adam sinned, but now each of us are born in Adam and are therefore sinners. It's not true that we were born good. It's not true that we were born good and then later became bad. It's not true that we were born sinless and then later became sinners. No, we didn't have to learn sin or how to disobey God. Now, a man named Pelagius, hundreds of years ago, wrongly denied original sin and taught a type of self-salvation. He said Adam was just the first sinner, and we've all just followed his example. But the word sinned at the end of verse 12 is in the aorist tense, and in the Greek that points to a single past action. Paul means the whole human race sinned in that one past action of Adam. What was the past action? It was a total mutiny. Church, it's not about the fruit. Is it an apple? Was it a pear? It's not about whether the tree was full of good fruit or not. It's certainly not that God was stingy. God had given a whole garden and an abundance of provision for God's people. He gave the most idyllic garden to Adam and Eve. No, there was a rebellion in the garden. Not with guns or swords, but Adam was given explicit instructions to not eat of the fruit of that tree in the garden. By eating it, Adam was saying, we're making the rules around here. We're in charge here. God, you're not good. God, you're not right. We're not following your ways. Oh, friends, there in the beginning of the book, of Genesis, soon after he was created, Adam was saying, I'm putting my place in the place of God. He said, I know better. And as a result of sin came death, both physical and spiritual. But it's not like we can just point the finger at Adam and say, it's his fault. Well, friend, you and I would have done the same thing. 
Eve did the same thing. But while Scripture holds Adam accountable, all of us would have followed suit. Paul is saying it's more than we've just followed Adam's example. Each of us is born into sin because we're all in Adam. When he sinned, we sinned. It's not that we're sinners because we sin. Now catch this distinction here. It's not that we're sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. We sin because we're sinners. Sin is in our very nature. Of course, we also prove this by our everyday actions. Now, the end of the verse, death has spread to us not only because of Adam's sin, but because all of us have sinned. Romans 3, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. None of us are righteous, not even one. We're no better than Adam. And if we were in the garden, we would have done the exact same thing. Verse 13, we talked about this a couple weeks ago. It doesn't mean there was no sin before the law was given. Paul says as much. There was sin in the world before the law. Sin has been in existence ever since that first sin in the garden. The law was given hundreds of years after sin came into the world. But Paul does say it wasn't counted as sin. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means sin wasn't taken into account in the same way when there was no law. Why? Well, because there was no law to break. And yet, what does Paul write back in Romans chapter 2? He says there's still guilt because the law of God is written on our hearts, the hearts of all human beings ever made, ever created. It wasn't a formal written out law, but it was a law on our hearts. It was there. What Paul is probably saying here is he's showing us that guilt and responsibility greatly increased with the clear knowledge of the law. For example, before Moses, there wasn't an explicit list of the law. That's what he taught. He went on to Mount Sinai. He came down with the Ten Commandments. There was no list of commandments or laws before then. When that comes down to the people at the bottom of that mountain and in times to come, it must have been looking like, looking like they were looking at a mirror. It was as if they were looking in a mirror, seeing their sin so clearly as they listened to those Ten Commandments and as they listened to God's law. It would have been clear to them, wow, I'm worse than I would have ever imagined. In a sense, the people's guilt was far more at that point. But even then, verse 14 Death reigned from Adam up to the law. Those who lived prior to the law were not exempt. They were not exempt from death and sin. Even those who sinned was not like Adam, meaning those who didn't sin by breaking a specific command like Adam did in the garden. We see specific sins and judgment not, not long after this in Genesis. We see a flood. In the days of Noah, God judges the world through a flood. We see in the Tower of Babel a few chapters later. God judges the people by scattering them across the earth. The destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah comes not long 
after. Paul's point is that there were others who didn't sin by disobeying a specific command, a direct command as Adam did and others did, and yet all died. Referring to a physical death, because physical death is one penalty for sin. This is repeated throughout the chapter five times in verses 15 through 19. Verse 15 says, For if many died through one man's trespass, what started with Adam through Moses continues on to today. Look at the last phrase of verse 14. What Paul is about to write as he concludes this chapter, Adam is a type of the one who was to come. If it's not clear, Paul makes it clear. There's a connection. The Bible makes a connection between Adam and the one to come. Adam is a type of the one to come. Adam brought upon sin, and sin was imputed. It was given to all of us. Now, for some of us from highly individualistic cultures, this may be hard to rationalize or hard to understand. This teaching to us might sound unfair. How could Adam's sin affect me? An individualist view would say, we're each on our own island. But the Bible sees things differently. It's an issue of solidarity, a corporate relationship where if one person loses something, we all lose something. If one person gains something, we all gain something. Now, it's interesting that while we might ask that question, Paul never asks it. Doesn't ask it. He doesn't answer it. Most likely, it's not a question that would have even come into Paul's mind. He regarded this relationship between Adam and the rest of humanity as natural. He's certainly thinking more communally than some of us would be thinking. As John Stott once said, all died because all sinned in and through Adam, the representative or federal head of the human race. This doctrine has often been called federal headship. Consider today a president or a king of a nation. They are a federal head. If the president or king of that nation declares war against another nation, those two nations are now at war. So I'll just pick two random nations, Slovakia and New Zealand. I don't think they've ever been at war with one another. I think they're friendly with one another. But if the presidents of Slovakia, if the leaders of state of Slovakia and New Zealand declare war against one another, we would say that New Zealand and Slovakia are at war. Even then, as we think about Adam, it feels unfair to many of us because we couldn't choose our head. Maybe in a democracy, you, you can choose your, your leader. There was no democracy in choosing Adam. God didn't take a vote. We didn't cast a ballot. But here's the thing. If we think we would have done a better job than Adam or know someone who would, what are we really saying? Who made Adam? Who chose Adam to be his representative on earth? Well, God did. 
God chose him. He created him precisely to be our representative. So you can't say, oh, I would have done a better job. If God would have just put me in the garden, I would have done great. I would have resisted the fruit. I would have obeyed God perfectly. No, you wouldn't. You wouldn't. You would have failed. You couldn't have been a better representative than the one God created. You wouldn't have resisted Satan. No way. But a second Adam would. This one would come and undo the sin and transgression that the first Adam brought into the world. And we'll see that comparison in the next section of chapter 5. We've looked at verses 12 through 14. We've seen the first Adam. Verses 15 through 21, we'll see the second Adam. We've seen the first Adam bring sin into the world. The second Adam is not like the first. And that's the second point this morning. So number one, the first Adam. Number two, the second Adam. And it's interesting because in these verses, in these seven verses, we're going to see what Adam's done and what Christ's life and death has accomplished. And you see quite a striking contrast. And I want you to notice that as we look at these verses. As I read these verses to you, I want you to notice the contrast between the first Adam and the second Adam. Each is a commentary of who these two men are. If Adam is a type of Jesus, you could say that Jesus is an anti-type of Adam. So keep those contrasts in mind as I read beginning in verse 15, and I'll just read all the way down to the end of the chapter. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For, for if because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Did you notice the contrasts? You notice the, the differences between Adam and Jesus there. Did you catch the repetition? It was almost as if Paul was just saying it over and over and over again. The comparisons, the contrasts between the first Adam and what the second Adam had done. Paul's trying to make the comparison, the contrast crystal clear. One is not like the other. Now, when I was a kid, there was a, a show that I would watch called Sesame Street. I don't know if they still film this show. Uh, I don't know 
if, I think it's changed maybe for the worse, but there was a theme song on Sesame Street that would come often, and it would get stuck in my head as a child. It was called, One of These Things is Not Like the Others. And they'd show a few objects on the screen, and you as a child are supposed to choose which one of those items is not like the others. Do some of you remember this? Some of you maybe have seen that, that part of the show Friends, Paul is saying here, these two men are not alike. One of these men is not like the other. One Adam is not like the other Adam. Look at verse 15. Notice Jesus has given us a free gift. There's nothing we could have done to earn it. It wasn't a result of our good works or a religious ritual. Paul says this free gift is not like the trespass. That's referring to Adam's sin. But what's the difference? Many died through the trespass. Universal death is attributed to a single sin by a single man. Adam's sin is a falling away from God's direction. He goes his own way. He's becoming his own God, or at least trying to become his own God. But what Jesus does here is entirely different. No self-assertion, but self-sacrifice. The two Adams couldn't be more different, and that's wonderful. What's wonderful here is God's grace and that the free gift outweighs our sin, our guilt, our shame. If you were doing observations in this text, last week, remember, we took a minute and we just did observations silently. If you were doing observations of this text, one of the things you want to do in that part of Bible study is you want to notice if there's any repetition in the text. We see many contrasts and comparisons here, but you'll see the word free. You'll see that statement, free gift, written four times, twice in verse 15, once in verse 16, once in verse 17. So if you are marking up your Bible, you might underline or circle that word free. You're going to want to know that word free. It's an important word here. Now, oftentimes when we see things advertised as Free, there's a catch, isn't there? There's the so-called fine print. There's that little print, very small print at the bottom of the advert, which tells you the conditions. Now, I'll never forget, it was my daughter's birthday a few years ago, and we went to a restaurant which I shall not name. We waited in line with our close friends for over two hours to be seated before their grand opening. Why? Well, because they had a big sign, a banner out front in front of the restaurant that said, free food for one year. Now, this was amazing. It, this was amazing. Free food for one year. Now, there was a catch, of course. It was just for the first 30 people in line, hence why we waited in line for over two hours. And it wasn't just any free food, but for each person, every time you come into the restaurant for one year, you were to be given two free side dishes. I'm thinking, wow, there are six of us in my family. And as side dishes, it's okay. It might not be main courses, but this restaurant even had premium side dishes. It had sweet potato fries. I love sweet potato fries. It had macaroni and cheese. Each of us get two sides. That means we get 12 free sides. We can fill up on sides anytime we want. So I did the math. I love math. I did the math, and I estimated if we came to the restaurant twice, Every week for the year, we would save 42,400 dirhams on food. 
Seems like good math to me. Forget any weight gain or hospital bills. This was a dream come true. Free food one year. But free doesn't always mean free, does it? We waited, then ate. Finally, we were given a card. But instead of getting six cards, they changed the terms and gave only one card per family. Instead of 12 sides, we'd only get two sides every time our family visited. And then there was the the fine print. You could only get those two sides, the card said, when you order an entree, which is, of course, expensive and already came with two sides of its own. And no other discounts were allowed when using your card, so you couldn't use the entertainer, which already was a better discount than just getting two free sides. It wasn't really free food at all. It's a sad day. Verse 15 of our text, it's a free gift. It's a free gift. Verse 16, it's a free gift. Verse 17, it's a free gift. Free, 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 free. Redeemer Church, there is no fine print with Jesus. There are no exceptions with Jesus. No false advertising with Jesus. No changing of terms with Jesus. Verse 16, this free gift is not like the result of Adam's sin. The judgment from Adam's sin brought about condemnation. It's what we saw from the end of chapters 1 through chapters 3, verse 20. We are condemned, judged by God for our sin. This free gift isn't like that. The one trespass brought about judgment, but the free gift followed many trespasses. It's not a one-for-one deal. Adam sinned once. All judgment comes. Jesus lives perfectly, and through his death, he saves all of his people's sins at once. But look at the verse. Adam didn't just sin once, and not just him, but we've all contributed to that phrase, many trespasses. This one gift gives, this one gift Jesus gives overwhelms the many trespasses. They're not alike because it's many sins, but one gift. God gives us a different kind of math. This math is a miracle. It's miracle math. Judgment should have come. Think about it. Back in the garden, judgment should have come upon Adam and Eve in that very moment. The penalty for sin is death. In that very moment, what Adam deserved for his sin is death. Instead, they get a miracle. It's a miracle that instead of death, right there in the beginning of our Bibles, Pastor Pram read in the very beginning of our service as a call to worship from Genesis chapter 3, and right there in the beginning of the Bible, not only do Adam and Eve get their life preserved, there are consequences to sin, they get put outside of the garden, but not only do they not get stricken dead physically in that moment, God actually makes the most amazing promise there, the first promise of a Savior to come in verse 15 of Genesis chapter 3. There's going to be a Savior. And the rest of the Old Testament and on into the New Testament shows us that. It shows us God's plan for saving humans from our sin. Immediately set in motion. Immediately set in motion after their sin. It wasn't like God had to think about it. God had to process this. God had to get over any hurt feelings. No, immediately after Adam and Eve's sin, God shows this and shares this plan in motion. A plan to save his people from their sins. There are effects of the fallen world, including physical death, but God's salvation plan was also in effect. Verse 17. Okay. 
Because of Adam's sin, death reigned through him. Much more, much more, these recipients of grace and the free gift, there's that freeness again, it's the fourth mention of it. The free gift of righteousness reigns through the one man, Christ Jesus. Now, Adam was God's creation. Paul is saying that Jesus is the greater king. God became flesh. His life greater than Adam's sin. Notice at the end of verse 17, the one man, Christ Jesus, the one man, Jesus Christ. Jesus was fully God and also fully man. His humanity, he came from heaven to earth, became man. His humanity allowed him to live like us. To be like us, to be fully representative of us, and to ultimately live the life Adam and all of us have failed to live. Hebrews 4, if you have time later on this afternoon, maybe you're in your devotional time, just read Hebrews chapter 4. Shows us that Jesus identifies with us. He can sympathize with us. He does sympathize with us. He faced what we face and more. Verse 18, one trespass led to condemnation. One act of righteousness leads to justification, a declaration. That's what justification means, right? To be declared righteous. And notice the end of the verse. Life for all men, all humanity. This is not good news for good people. There are no good people. This is not good news for some people. The questions I often asked, maybe one of the top questions I get asked after I preach, after the service is, why do bad things happen to good people? Have you thought about this question? Maybe someone's asked you this question. Why do bad things happen to good people? But see, friend, there's something fundamentally flawed with that question. That's because there are no good people. We're sinners, born sinners, and so we sin. The question's not why do bad things happen to good people. The real shocking question and answer is why do good things happen to bad people? Why does God's grace come upon sinners? That's the question we should be asking, and that's the question we should be shocked at the answer. Why does grace come to sinners? Most of all, why does salvation come to sinners? Why are we sinners offered this free gift and not just some of us sinners? Verse 18 says this is offered to all it's not just Easterners or Westerners. It's not just for the old or the young or for the Finnish or the Filipinos, the Africans or the Brazilians, the young or the old, the rich, the poor, the pastors, the congregants, uh, those who grew up in the church, those who didn't grow up in the church. There's no or. There's no or in the text. It's not offered to some. You don't have to be this type of person or that type of person. You don't have to have this type of experience or that type of experience. There's no or in verse 18, but there is an all. There is an all. This free gift is offered to all people. More good news. Verse 19, Paul keeps repeating himself in these verses, doesn't he? Making the same point over and over again. He's saying, don't miss this, Romans. Don't miss this, Redeemer Church of Dubai. 
Verse 19, for as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. He's saying it again. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. He's the better Adam. He did what Adam couldn't do. He's the greater Adam. Through Adam's sin, we were all declared unrighteous in God's sight, just like we're declared righteous in God's sight for what Jesus has done. Martin Lloyd-Jones put it this way. Look at yourself in Adam. Though you had nothing, though you had done nothing, you were declared a sinner. Look at yourself in Christ. And see that though you have done nothing, you are declared to be righteous. That's the parallel here. First Adam and second Adam. We are made righteous by a better federal head, Jesus, through the obedience of one man, the God-man, as our representative. He was obedient even to the point of death. And now that obedience, that obedience is our obedience. Verse 20, now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Well, Paul's been talking about Adam. He's been talking about Jesus, first Adam, last Adam. Some would have asked, well, what about Moses? What about the law? It's been mentioned, but what's its place? Because if the law didn't cause more sin, what did it do? What's its purpose? Well, it brought to light what sin was. Many uses of the law, many purposes for it. But one thing it did is it brought light, brought into light what sin was. The law reveals sin. It displays it, makes it clear. The irony, here's the irony. The Jews thought of the law and their following of it as a way to earn righteousness from God. But you see how Paul turns that argument right on its head. Instead, he says, you think the law gives you a pathway to righteousness? That if you follow this law and that law and that law, you can be righteous before God? Actually, it's the opposite. Paul says the opposite is, is true. The law shows you that you are more sinful than you could have ever imagined doesn't make us righteous. It shows us that we're unrighteous. There also weren't different levels of sin across the centuries. Our sins may have changed some over time, but at the root level, back thousands of years ago and today, there's pride, lust, greed, covetousness, anger, murder, maybe at the root of it, of it all, idolatry, putting ourselves in the place of God. The Ten Commandments are as true today as they were thousands of years ago. Our technology might have changed, but our hearts are still the same. This is what the law did. The law made sin obvious. It gave language to what humans were already doing. Guilty already, but now it's clear. Even so, where sin became more clear, where it increased, what does Paul write? Grace. Grace abounded all the more. Grace, grace. God's grace. Grace greater than all of our sin. Look at verse 21. 
so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now there are two kinds of rain. I'm not talking about the kind of rain that we hardly ever see fall from the sky here in Dubai. This is not an R-A-I-N rain. I can't remember the last time this foreign substance fell from the sky, but I'm not talking about that kind of rain. Paul's talking about a different kind of rain, an R-E-I-G-N kind of rain, to reign, to rule over as a king. And he's saying in verse 21, sin reigned in death, grace reigns or rules through righteousness. Now Adam's name isn't mentioned here, but it's there. His sin and all of our sin leads to death. Grace and life are set in contrast here to sin and death. Two kinds of reign. The first king's reign, King Adam, led to death. The second king's reign led to grace and life. The first king named Adam, which means man, failed. And Bible scholar Greg Beale says that the language used in Adam's creation, statements like, made in his likeness, made in his image, God's image. They are they're terms of sonship. Being made in God's image as his son is strongly connected in the biblical narrative with exercising dominion, with, with a kingship. Adam was God's vice regent, but the son of man, or you could say the son of Adam, is a title used for Jesus. We see this title used in the Old Testament in the book of Daniel in chapter 7, verse 13. It refers to an end-time representative king as the son of Adam, who is sovereign over all. It's against that background that Beal says that it's natural that the title son of man, that became one of Jesus' favorite ways of referring to himself. So friend, if you ever are told by someone that Jesus never claimed to be God, first of all, you can show them in the Gospels, there are several places that Jesus claims divinity. One way he does so is by referring to himself as the Son of Man. This is a divine title. He's referring back to Daniel. Let me just read these verses, Daniel chapter 7, 13 and following. Listen to these words in Daniel. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This is who Jesus is talking about. He's talking about himself when he says that he is the son of man or the son of Adam. And when he comes to earth, he begins to undo the damage and the sin that the first Adam did. And inherits for us what the first Adam didn't inherit for us, unfading, eternal glory. Jesus came as the end-time, edemic son of God, doing what the first Adam should have done in completely obeying God. In this, he was inaugurating the kingdom of the new creation. In summary, one king Adam was given kingship and rulership in a garden. He was to reflect God in ruling over creation, but he failed. The second king, Jesus, performed miracles of healing, showing that while Adam failed to rule over nature, King Jesus had power over all nature. As one author has said, Jesus ruling over nature and Satan represent, in part, a reversal of the original curse on the first Adam for his disobedience. 
One King Adam was to rule over creation and to create, to be fruitful and to multiply, to fill that garden with image bearers, enjoying fellowship with God, but he failed. Everyone born after him failed. The second king would live the life Adam was supposed to live in perfect obedience to God. One King Adam, through his sin, brought death and disease into the world. The second king, Jesus, performed healings, which represented a restoration of creation and the fallen world. Jesus' healings were a reverse of the curse. Little by little, you could see the curses of the fall were starting to be removed by Jesus, a little taste of what the new creation would be. These healings, and especially when Jesus would raise people from the dead. You see Lazarus, John chapter 11, Jesus rise, raised Lazarus from the dead, pointed to his own resurrection, which points to ultimately his people's resurrection, our resurrection from the dead. Jesus was establishing a kingdom Adam was to establish but failed. One King Adam, when faced with Satan's temptation, failed to overcome. A second king, Jesus, when he faced Satan's temptation in the wilderness, he was victorious. He would even cast demons out. And when it looked like the devil had finally won, when Jesus was there on the cross and Jesus breathed his last breath and died there on the cross and was stuffed in a tomb, even in that moment when it looked like Satan had won. We know on the third day, Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus died and he rose and he was glorified as the second or the last Adam. Where Adam brought death, Jesus brings life. Adam, when standing in front of that judgment tree in the garden, failed. Whereas Jesus, the second Adam, stood before that judgment tree of the cross he could declare that he had overcome all of temptation, all of sin, that he resisted eating that so-called forbidden fruit and had accomplished what Adam and what you and I couldn't do. See, Adam lost access of the tree of life in the garden through his sin. Jesus, through his death on another tree, has provided us access again to the tree of life. Second King provides a grace which can satisfy all of our souls. Church, it's an overwhelming grace. We see there at the cross, we see that there was nothing sin could do to triumph over the second Adam. You could even say we're saved by faith and by works. It's just not our works which save us. It's a salvation through the work of Jesus Christ. The question is not whether we're saved by works, but whose works? It's not Adam's, it's not ours, but Jesus' work on the cross on our behalf. No, we are saved solely by grace, by what the second Adam has undone, what the first Adam and what each of us has done. Well, the first Adam is not the end of our story. There's a second Adam who is perfect. And while we might feel like it's unfair to suffer the effects of the first Adam's sin, let's leave with this in our hearts today. It's certainly unfair that we can enjoy the effects of the second Adam's life, death, and resurrection. But friends, we do. 
We get to enjoy the effects of the second Adam's death and resurrection. And he is reigning on high. And he will come back for his people one day. Oh, friends, it is unfair that we get to enjoy the effects of what the second Adam has done. But we do. We do. We do. There is a greater king, and his name is Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your story of redemption didn't end with the failure of the first Adam, but continued to the free gift provided by the second Adam. Thank you for Jesus, for his substitutionary atonement, the sin he undid, the salvation he brought, the life he provides. Oh, Father, thank you for these hope-filled verses. Father, we know there's nothing we could do to earn salvation. And so, Father, we pray, even for anybody in this room today that does not yet follow Christ, anyone in this room who has not yet repented of their sins and trusted in Jesus to save them, oh, Father, we pray that you would do that even today, Lord, that there, if, our, if there are any non-believers, any of those who have yet to follow you, would today be the day of their salvation? And would they turn to you right now in their seat? Father, because we know that there's nothing we can do to save ourselves. There's no religious ritual or rite, but only faith in the greater King Jesus, the second Adam. Father, we thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we sing our songs of response, let's sing together. Please stand as we sing.